sing that song, but actually meditate through the words. They're absolutely beautiful words. Well, the series that I introduced last week on Ephesians from the book of Acts, we actually getting right into the epistle. So, this is part one on Ephesians chapter one, verses one to three, and blessed saints. So, um, yep, kids' church? No, no, okay, all right, all good, all right. So, last week we looked at the church in Ephesus from Acts chapter 19 and how it started. The church was built, started in a city, an influential city, the, the second largest city of the Roman Empire at the time. It was rich, it was influential, it was powerful, and yet spiritually dead. The people were gripped in paganism and the practice of the occult. Paul and his team were there for over two years teaching from the rented, some rented premises and God did an amazing thing changing the lives, these lives who were lost, that were saved, miraculously changed through the power. And because they were changed, that, that change spread and uh, the, the, the once thriving business started to suffer. And Satan fought back and soon the opposition grew and a riot developed. And God used the local clerk to settle things down and the church was able to continue its, its witness. And this witness continued throughout Asia Minor. And, and many churches were founded from this strategic point. Well, where are these... Which churches are they? Well, in the beginning of Revelations, you will see them. Some of these churches that were founded from Ephesus. So here we are. At the beginning of the letter, some, some ten years later, Paul writes to his friends in Ephesus. But this letter wasn't just to them, it was to spread throughout the other churches in the region as an encouragement he wanted to share with believers the great truth the Lord had taught him about Christ and the church. And the purpose was to remind them of the things he previously taught them, establish them in the faith and, and also to tackle the a heresy uh, there was the beginnings of Gnosticism that was beginning to creep in into the city. Heresy was never far away from the church. And Paul's situation has now changed. Before he was able to travel, but he was now a prisoner in Rome, much in Rome, awaiting, awaiting his trial. Not much else you can do in prison, I suppose can't go anywhere. So what does he do? He writes this inspired letter. It was written about the year 62 AD. It's amazing to think that even though he was on trial for his life, that he was still concerned 
very much about the spiritual needs of the churches he had founded. How many of us would be able to say the same? When we are in deep distress or in in trial, to to be able to, to surrender everything to the Lord and actually, rather than worry about ourselves, to start being concerned about the rest of the people out there. And in particular for the Apostle Paul, it was the spiritual needs of the churches he had founded. So a lot of the epistles, I would say most of the epistles, was actually written while he was in prison. So if God wanted Paul to write an epistle, he put him in prison. Some writing time. Now under God's providence, this letter, this beautiful letter has been preserved so we have it in front of us. This letter comes from the heart of God through the heart of Paul to the heart of man. It was written so that today, at a moment such as this, we also can just feast on it and, 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 and be lost in the, the wonder of who our God is. It needs to be read slowly, carefully, again and again. Let me share with you some of the things that others have said about this marvellous letter. John Stott, the late John Stott, begins his commentary on Ephesians with these words. The letter to the Ephesians is a marvellously concise yet comprehensive summary of the Christian good news and its implications. Nobody can read it without being moved to wonder and worship and challenged to consistency of life. It was John Calvin's favourite letter. John Mackey, a former president of Princeton Theological Seminary, said this, What we read here is truth that sings, doctrine set to music. As the Apostle proclaimed God's order to the post-Augustan Roman era, which was marked by a process of social disintegration, So Ephesians is today the most contemporary book in the Bible since it promises community in a world of disunity, reconciliation in place of alienation and peace instead of war. How contemporary is that? There is so much here that it will take us a while to unpack it. In fact, uh, starting with the, the opening chapter, we already find, we are going to find so many gifts of grace to unwrap. So much so that um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he preached more than 35 sermons on chapter 1 alone. <laughs> chapter 1, okay? I'm not that good, I've just got to warn you, alright? And we won't be spending that much time on on chapter 1, but there is so much there. And this is why uh, Martin Lord Jones called Ephesians the sublimest and the most majestic expression of the Gospel. You have Romans, 16 chapters, and you have Ephesians, 6 chapters, so it's a a mini Romans in in many ways. So let's get, get into it. 
The chosen apostle, the first part of verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Notice how the apostle Paul describes himself. An apostle is, is someone who is sent with a message. Therefore, he was a messenger. But this just wasn't any message like, by the way, bring the milk or bring the bread. No, Paul gloried in the fact that he was a messenger for Jesus Christ himself. And an apostle doesn't just pass hearsay or personal opinion or his own interpretation. As an authorised spokesman, what he says is what he has heard. In communion we shared, what I received, I passed on to you. What he received, he's passed on to us. So if you or I don't agree with the Apostle Paul, and there will be stuff that you won't, you're going to be challenged in this letter. So if you don't agree with Paul, you you're actually not agreeing with the Lord who sent him either. Good luck with that. Ultimately, the problem is with us, not with the Scriptures. So we need to remember that as we are, we will be confronted with some of the truth in this inspired letter. Now, Paul was always amazed by the fact that it was by the will of God, that he was an apostle. It wasn't his idea. It wasn't his own decision. He certainly didn't apply for the position, you know, and went for an interview and said, by the way, what do you, what do you reckon? You know, you, do you want the job? No, <laughs> he had no choice in the matter. Paul did not have anything to do with his dramatic conversion to become a believer, let alone on his appointment to become an apostle. Rather, it all happened by the sovereign will of God. Because before Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus, Paul had everything worked out, he had his future. You know, or what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, well, I want to persecute Christians, just slaughter them. That's what I want to do. Oh, yeah. I want to be a Pharisee. And yet, God had other plans. While Paul was fiercely opposing God at every moment, he was... He was actually, God was trying to reach to him and he was kicking against the goads. That's the expression. And God was prodding him until God stopped him on his tracks, blinded him physically, but opened his eyes spiritually to see the risen Saviour before him. And Jesus would use his natural talents. He had a brain. God would use that. He was passionate. God would use that. He had character and he redirected all of that and channeled it 
for his glory. By the year 62 AD, he was well and truly shown how much he would suffer for Jesus' name. That's the chosen apostle. What about the people he is writing to? So this is from the first, the second part of verse 1 to verse 2. The people. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ, Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he writes, he says here, to God's holy people or God's holy saints. Think about it. When, when he arrived at the city ten years earlier, when he first went to Ephesus, um, he would not have called them saints or holy people. They were, all in, they were all into all these weird and wonderful things. But now look at them. He calls them saints. Now, the word saint is simply one of the many terms used in the, in the New Testament to describe someone who has trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. There are many saints here this morning. The person is not dead, he is very much alive, not only physically but also spiritually. The word saint is related to the word sanctified, which means someone who has been set apart. It refers to those who have been cleansed from all guilt by Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. We are set apart, we are separated from this evil world and set apart for God, for his holy purposes. In in, in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10, this is what we read. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We have been made. Having said that, having said that, it is rather unfortunate that the word saint has been badly used and misunderstood over the years. And and let's face it, we don't like to be called saints. St. Dennis. Okay. You know, it's like radio. And and suddenly you start feeling uncomfortable because of our misunderstanding, society's misunderstanding of what a saint is. The dictionary defines a saint as a person who is officially recognised for holiness of life. That's what the dictionary says. And a few years after somebody dies and they belong to the Catholic faith, the church examines the deceased person's life carefully to see whether he or she qualifies for sainthood. 
to top it off, if someone prayed to that saint and they have been responsible, you prayed to that saint who has, well, to that person who is not yet a saint, but you just pray to them and, you know, some miracle, what you call a miracle, happens. You need at least two miracles, then you can go to the church hierarchy and, you, and that person is well on their way to being canonised, to be called an official saint of the Catholic Church. Now, where is that process in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. It's a, it's a tradition that started years ago. It's all instigated by the church hierarchy as a way to, you know, wherever they want, the Catholic faith is, seems to be waning a little bit. They say, well, do we know any people who live the godly life and such? And I'm not saying these people were bad. They were good. They were good examples. Christian faith, many of them. And so they go and, they say, yeah, like, for example, Mary MacKillop and others, they were great people. But are they, are they the people that we had to pray to? And are they the people that we are to pray to in order to get miracles done and get things done? Are they the only ones who are set apart to be declared holy? No, it's actually... And maybe you prefer it that way. Please don't call me a saint because I don't deserve it. No, you're right, you don't deserve it. Let's just get that out of the way, right? But we all call to be holy. We all called and are already declared saints. If you've given your life to Christ, you're a saint. The challenge is to live up to it. Live up to your title. Live up to the name. And that's perhaps is the difficulty. So, nine times in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul addresses his readers as saints. Just think about the stuff that they used to get up to. No, you don't want to know. And yet here he calls them saints. Wow. This is not something they attain by being good people, by cleaning up their immoral life but something that was done for them and in them. These saints are not dead. Three, four years later after they died, they were declared saints. No, they're very much alive in Christ. Everybody around them is dead, but they're alive, truly alive. And now that they and us have been given the title, let's live up to the name. In Philippians we read, Philippians 1.27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. They are also called here in this verse as faithful in Christ Jesus. They are continuing in the faith. In the following verses we will see that this, this precious saving faith is indeed a, a gift from God as we have said but this does not mean that we simply lock up our faith in a safe 
so it doesn't get damaged and then just, you know, sing kumbaya, you know, go sleep, retire on a hammock and they say, well, I want to remain holy. I don't want to be tarnished by all this stuff. So separate yourself. No, is that what separation, is that what holiness means? No. You are in the world but not of the world. And this faithfulness is something that we must exercise, not just believe but actually live it out. And he says this, he says, Grace to you and peace from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. In the film um, Gladiator, I'm sure most of us would have watched that, the greeting was strength and honour between the soldiers, right? Strength and honour. Now contrast that with Paul's greeting to these believers, grace and peace. Strength and honour, grace and peace. It's different, right? The two great legacies of the Christian are grace and peace. Two things you can always have no matter where you are, no matter what your circumstances, no matter no matter how terminal your disease is. And we're all we all have a terminal disease, right? It's called life. It is terminal. The only thing that cancer or anything else does is you go a little bit sooner than you probably plan to. But eventually this is terminal. It's a terminal condition. In the reality of that, in in the truth of that fact, we are still to experience grace and peace. Grace is God's presence, power, love and his beauty available to us. It's this marvellous term which wraps up all that God is and it is offered to us, it is given to us. Grace is charming, it is lovely, it is pleasant and it is all displayed in the peace that God gives us. It's the peace that the world cannot understand. Mate, what are you smoking? You know? Why are you so chill? Because of Jesus, not some drugs. Peace is freedom from anxiety, from fear, from worry. Open your eyes and see how for the last two years our world has been gripped by anxiety, by fear, by worry. Look at it. And yet, grace and peace. These are two characteristics which ought to mark every Christian in every age, irrespective of the circumstances. A sense of security, stability, trust in this mad and chaotic world that we are part of. Grace and peace. And now the blessings, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. This whole paragraph that runs through verse after verse is actually one sentence in the Greek. We're just going to look at the the first little bit, but there's no break. 
It's almost like, <gasps> the Apostle Paul is not coming up for air in these, all these following verses. Have a read of it at home. But we're just going to open it, this whole, par- this whole section to give you a taste of it. We have all learned that God is to be praised. We've, we hear it. We know it. We believe it. We are to give thanks in all circumstances. Book of Psalms. It's just praise after praise after praise. But what if we don't feel like it? Our, our feelings you know, always need to catch up. You know, it's like most of us think that it's something that we must make ourselves do. That we have to do it because God needs it. His ego, God's ego needs to be massaged every now and then by our praise. And unless we praise him, he gets mad at us and doesn't run things right in our lives. Is that really the basis upon which your praise is is built on? Really? This is wrong. You know, and, 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 and praise gets harder with this entitled generation. You know, I have a right. No, you don't. That's entitlement. You don't have a right. You are, everything you have is a gift. It's been given. Your freedom, your health, your wealth, your knowledge your peace and grace and you still have no reason to praise God? Serious? And this is just this life. What about the life to come? It's getting harder and harder to, to teach people to praise God because genuine praise is a response from a thankful heart which is Overwhelmed. How can you not be overwhelmed after singing some of those songs and then just think about those words? We will join with the generations before God's throne and, and sing to the Lamb who gave it all for us. How can you not be drawn to tears with that reality? Overwhelmed. God's mercy. To try to list all the things God has done for us is, I suppose, impossible. So just choose, when you come to pray before him, just choose a couple of things at a time. It's good practice, even if it's just one or two things, just turn your heart to him and and just keeps us mindful of how much we truly owe him. And, and like I said, praise is a vital part of a, of a life surrendered to God. The psalmist said in Psalm 107 verse 8, Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Psalm 107 verse 8. So firstly, the source of our blessings. The source of our blessings is God the Father who has made us rich in Jesus Christ. 
When you are born again into God's family, you are born rich. Through Christ, you share in, in riches. What riches? The riches of God's grace, God's glory, God's mercy. But most times we take these riches for granted because we don't naturally start our thinking with God and, and his purposes. We tend to start with ourselves, with our needs, with our current situation, with our experience. And this is only a very limited partial view of the whole of reality. This just sort of narrows our range, the range of our vision to what we are going through now. Consequently, we get twisted ideas of what is the only problem and what isn't. The only proper way to view truth is to start with God and see things from his perspective. Seek ye first his kingdom and then everything else will follow. We hear a lot about uh, the billionaires. They seem to be in the news all the time, the billionaires of the world. I think some of them are getting close to being trillionaires soon. They say that in Australia there are some 120 billionaires in Australia alone. Forget about millions. You thought about being a millionaire is great. No, forget that. We're over the billions. Oh, great. Now you have to be a billionaire if you want to be somebody. 120 of them in Australia. These are the ones that have so much money, but unfortunately not enough lifetimes to enjoy it, right? And we think, wow, wouldn't it be nice? Yeah. Just, just hop in your plane, don't have to queue up at mascot, and just travel anywhere in the world you want. Everybody waiting, hand and foot. I read in the news this week that um, there was a billionaire who had no heirs. And so he just adopted some guy and says, okay, you can be my heir. You will have all my, my riches once I die. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's nice. Yeah, I'm up for adoption. You know, I can see people say. Right? Well, we actually have been. Right? We have been adopted. We are heirs. Through Jesus, we, we are so incredibly privileged already. Yeah, 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 but I, I, I want my riches now, thank you. I want to cash in. I want to enjoy this life. What, not, you know, throughout this, this letter, Paul would explain to us just what these riches mean, what they are and the significance of them, and, and how we can draw upon them as Christians, as believers. So the source of our blessings is the Father. Secondly, the sphere of our blessings. In the Old Testament, God promised his people Israel. A lot of the blessings in, in the Old Testament were all material blessings as a reward for their obedience. It's one thing follows the other. 
But today he promises to supply all our needs according to his riches and glory. But he does not promise to shield us either from poverty or pain. The Father has blessed us in the heavenly realms, it says. The unbeliever, the pagan, is is primarily interested in the earthly things because this is where he lives and thinks and this is what he thinks that what is now will ever be. That's all there is, nothing else. This is the dif- and the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian, the non-believer, has to be there has to be a different understanding of this reality. If you if your thinking is only for this life, that's natural thinking. The natural man thinks this way, but the spiritual thinking is done by the spiritual man. Jesus called the people of this world, he said, these are the, the, those who think naturally, just for this life, these are the children of the world, the pagans. But the Christian life is centred in heaven because that is where our citizenship is at. This is where our name is written. This is where, and that is where our father lives. He lives in heaven. And that's where we will be. But we're not living in heaven yet, are we? Dale Moody used to warn about people who were so heavenly minded that they were of no earthly good. And this is why I think it's good to, to understand that the Christian really operates in two spheres, the human and the divine. Human and divine. The visible and the invisible. They're here and they're not yet. Physically, he's on the earth in a human body that continually deteriorates. We're reminded of that every morning. But spiritually, spiritually, he's seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And this, that has to influence this. This is why this letter is a, a marvellous combination of the heavenly treasures for the first three chapters we're reminded of that and the last three are an application of the first three. Thirdly, the breath of our blessings. The believer is blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Not just some, every The Father has given us every blessing of the Spirit, everything we need for successful, satisfying, fulfilling Christian life. Everything. This should tell us that the spiritual life is far, far more important than the physical, far more valuable than the material. Somebody... um, F.E. Marsh mentions some of God's blessings as found in the New Testament. Let me just run quickly through this list. Some of the, to give you an, an idea of the breadth of our blessings. An acceptance that can never be questioned, Ephesians 1.6. An inheritance that can never be lost, 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. 
A deliverance that can never be excelled to Corinthians 1.10. A grace that can never be limited to Corinthians 12.9. A hope that can never be disappointed, Hebrews 6.18.19. A bounty that can never be withdrawn, 1 Colossians 3.21-23. A joy that can never be diminished, John 15.11. A nearness to God that can never be reversed, Ephesians 2.13. A peace that can never be disturbed, John 14.27. A righteousness that can never be tarnished, 2 Corinthians 5.21. A salvation that can never be cancelled, Hebrews 5.9. That's just some of them. Notice how all of these Distinctive blessings of the new covenant are spiritual, not material. Satan, our enemy, will continually tell us that these are not real, that these are simply part of the pie in the sky when we die by and by. And if you do happen, if you do happen to, to believe them, the other lie that Satan tells us is that we can, even if you do believe that stuff, you can lose them because you're never going to be good enough for God's perfect standard. God's always upset at you, angry at you. So one day you're saved, the next day you're not. He loves me, he loves me not. You know, like you're picking, picking flowers. Is that really? No, no. Salvation can never be cancelled. In conclusion, we live in a culture that regularly confuses humanity with deity because we, we even as believers, we often make this mistake we, that we project our image onto God and we think that God is, is a bit like us, just an extension. He's more powerful than us and therefore he's everything like us but better. It's a kind of sloppy theology that even from pulpits you sort of hear every now and then. The kind of sloppy theology that says that God sits on the edge of heaven thinking and wondering what's Paul Mossetuk going to be doing next? Hmm. How absurd. God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. He knows our thoughts our sinful decision, our evil deeds, yet he still loves his son and daughter. Nothing ever we ever do catches him by surprise. Jesus said, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Well, this morning I just lost number 110, by the way. It's lost, so there's less work for God. From the moment we are conceived to the moment we die, we remain within the frame of his watchful gaze under his sovereign plan. This is too marvellous, David said, for us to understand. Because of his grace, we are blessed beyond measure. Can't measure that. So in the coming weeks we will expand on these themes as we immerse ourselves 
in this wonderful epistle as we learn about God, ourselves and his purpose for the church. Amen. Amen. Let's sing a great old hymn that will lift our hearts.